welcome you to, we're in week two now uh, of our series called The Church, uh, which is a series that's designed to answer the question each week from a different angle, uh, what does it really mean to be a Christian and to be a part of this thing called the church? So for this series, which is going to take us to the end of the summer, we're going to be spending all of our time in the first four chapters of the New Testament letter known as Ephesians because there's really no place in Scripture that answers that question Um, any better and any more clearly than that. So last week, if you were here, we started the series looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which you may remember I I, uh, mentioned in the original Greek is just one long sentence. And it's all about uh, really one thing primarily. It's all about what a Christian has uh, the moment that they give their life to Jesus. But but if you remember last week, I, I mentioned that I wasn't even going to try to touch in verses 9 through 12 um, because there's so much going on in just those verses that it really does warrant its own dedicated teaching. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So I want to begin uh, reading you uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and uh, we'll get started. <laughs> that is it's just hilarious timing. Like, <laughs> All right. Uh, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We've also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory." This is God's word. Now, we're still in this opening section of Ephesians, which means uh, Paul's primary aim here is still to talk about what you have the moment you give your life to Jesus. The difference is now, instead of talking about that in purely a, a personal, subjective way, what Paul is doing is he's, he's talking about your salvation on a cosmic scale. I was trying to think of the best way to illustrate this. This is the best thing I can come up with. When, when uh, my wife Katie and I were married, we honeymooned in St. Lucia, and if you've ever been there, they have three little resorts, uh, the Grand, Latak, and the Halcyon. Katie and I um, stayed on the, the Halcyon. So obviously we spent most of our time there, and, and it was neat kind of acclimating to it and figuring it all out. But one day we were perusing the beach, and Sandals has all these giant signs that says, no matter what you do, don't say yes to an, um, you know, a tour from the locals. You know, it's got to be a Sandals-approved thing. And Katie and I felt like taking our life in our own hands, so we did an unapproved, unsanctioned tour. Some guy was asking if we were interested in, in uh, hopping on his boat and seeing the island, and we said yes, rolled the dice, and here I am today, which proves sometimes the risk is worth it. So we hopped on a boat with this guy, a number of other couples, and he showed us the entire island and took us you know, into these different markets and, and villages, and we saw basically a volcano, and it was really neat. It just gave us a far grander perspective of what life was like on that island. And really, if you want to get to know a place, if you want to get to know a culture, if you want to get to know anything at all, you need both of those perspectives. You need the up close and personal, but you also need the 30,000 foot view. And what this passage we're looking at today is designed to do in a spiritual way is give you a 30,000 foot view of salvation. 
Um, prior to this, if you were here last week, Paul is talking about your salvation purely in terms of what it means to you personally, that God chose you, he predestined you, he adopted you, he redeemed you, and that's great, and you need to know that, and you need to be reminded of that. But what Paul's doing now is he's lifting you out of what God is doing in just your life, and he's giving you a picture of what God is doing in all of history. And it is amazing. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. Uh, It's clarifying. I think it's also profoundly comforting and settling to see what God is doing in the grand scheme of history. And so with that in mind, I want to put forward a a question to you today. I think this is about as relevant a question as ever. Uh, And if you get our Connect emails, you you probably saw this on Wednesday or Thursday or whenever it went out. But, But here it is. How do you maintain your sanity in the midst of, I could probably just stop there, but how do you maintain your sanity in the midst of a world that continually tries to take it from you? How do you do that? If you go back in time about 2,000 years and you look at those early followers of Jesus that we refer to as the early church, that's one of the primary things that they were known for. That despite the fact that the entire Roman Empire was bent on driving them to extinction, they weren't, it wasn't just that they maintained their sanity, it's they had a, just this otherworldly, transcendent, impossible to ignore joy and peace about them. That when everyone was trying to rob them of it, they only seemed to grow stronger in it. So the question is, how did they get that and how can you and I get that? And the answer is found in these verses today. There's three big ideas that these verses offer us that they need to come together and they need to come home and they need to form the foundation of what we build our lives on. And when they do, they give us the ability to maintain a joy and a peace and a sanity in the world, a, a world that just seems intent on, on taking it from you. And I want to give you those three ideas on the front end. Uh, they're first and foremost, that there's a plan for history. Secondly, that everything that happens is a part of that plan. And thirdly, that Jesus is the point of that plan. Those three ideas are going to serve basically as the outline for our time together. With that, I want to get into our first big idea today. Number one, it's that there is a plan for history. We see this in verse 9 in the beginning of verse 10, which I'll read to you. It says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment. The the main idea there is, is Paul is saying, first and foremost, that there's a plan to how history is unfolding. And I don't know if that sounds obvious to you, um, but I'd offer you for your consideration that that idea was not obvious at all to the Ephesians because it really wasn't obvious to anybody until Christianity came around. Uh, Anthropologists will actually tell you the idea that, that history is progressing, that it's moving toward any kind of point or has any kind of purpose was a Christian idea before it was anybody else's idea. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but ancient civilizations basically all believed that history was cyclical, that empires would rise and fall, and then eventually we would just kind of be done here, maybe drive ourselves to extinction or who knows what. Um, if, you, if you look at other creation accounts of other belief systems, whether it's the Old Norse, uh, Egyptian, Babylonian, Sumerian, Greek, Roman, they pretty much all said the same thing, which is that mankind's creation was just the accidental byproduct of a war between the gods, between the elemental forces of nature. And so because they believed that we were not here for any specific purpose, we were the product of an accident, so they believed, in keeping with that, that human history was an accident, so it didn't really have a purpose. And what's interesting is that modern secularism has basically just sort of recaptured and rephrased that same old idea. And to show you what I mean, I want to read to you, I've actually... 
I think I read this to you about this time last year. This is a quote I came across not too long ago by a, um, a famous 20th century secular philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. And uh, this quote uh, perfectly encapsulates the secular view not only of your life, but of human history in general, and, and, and get ready, because it's a real pick-me-up. He says, that man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, growth, hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. He says all that to say this, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Doesn't that just make you want to carpe the diem? Uh, all that is, is a, it's a succinct summary of what every belief system said prior to Christianity and what modern secularism says today, which is basically that you are, pardon the expression, the unplanned pregnancy of the universe, that neither you nor anything you do in this life, either morally good or evil, which are just constructs that we made up to feel better about ourselves, matters at all because eventually all mankind is going to die in the death of the solar system. And so eventually it'll be as though we were never here to begin with. He says, if you're not willing to accept that, you're a coward. I don't have to, and I've done this in other teachings, I don't have time to do it today, to get into the horrifying implications of that or how bankrupt that is when it comes to giving you resources to actually handling the ebb and flow of life. But the point is, Christianity says, nope. Christianity says that you are not an accident, that nothing that you experience is an accident, that all of this is going somewhere because, number one, there actually is a plan. The second thing you see in these verses, which is our, our second idea today, is that absolutely everything in history is a part of this plan. And we see this in verse 11, which says, we have also received an inheritance in him predestined according to the purpose of the one who, and pay careful attention to this phrase, works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Now, if you just read that verse at face value, it says what it looks like it's saying that God works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. So you, you camp out on this idea for any length of time, and uh, you will quickly find yourself grappling with a question that people have been wrestling with really for as long as we've been around. The question is, are we free or is there a plan that we cannot escape? And I know you hate it when I do this, but the answer, there it is, <laughs> the answer of the Bible is yes, all right? By and large, uh, and I'm going to show you how important this is, try to anyway. By and large, um, human thought has settled on, we've taken an either-or approach to that question. Either we ha there's a fixed plan that we can't escape, or we're absolutely free to determine our, our lives for ourselves. Um, on one hand, you have fatalism which is the belief that says everything's fixed and your choices really don't matter. Kick against the goads of the universe, though you will. You'll end up exactly where you were destined to end up. This idea is, is found in uh, lots of places, but the one that came to mind when I was putting this together is um, 
The movie A Knight's Tale, one of Heath Ledger's last films. He's a lowborn peasant, really wants to be a knight, and he keeps getting bombarded with this kind of keep-you-down statement, a man can't change his stars. That's the idea that, you know, your life is fixed. And even if you try to fight it, well, that was just a part of the plan that was fixed for your life, um, which is interesting. You see that in a lot of time travel movies, and they never do it well because you can't really get into time travel without messing everything up. Anyway, the other end of that spectrum is the kind of modern American approach to life, which is <laughs> perfectly summarized by what old Doc Brown says to Marty McFly <laughs> at the end of Back to the Future. This is a direct quote. Your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. And uh, I don't think I have to sell you on this. There's something that's very attractive about that idea, you know, that, this idea that I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my soul. Really, since Genesis chapter 3, we, there's a part of the human heart that really desires that. We want to be the kings and the lords and, you know, totally authoritative over our own lives to carve out a life for ourselves. But let me just kind of offer you this. I think you'll agree when I walk through it. That as attractive as that idea might be on the surface, when you really think through the implications of it, I don't think anybody actually wants that to be true. And to prove that point in my life, let me go ahead and real quickly uh, take a journey down memory lane to when I was in high school. Uh, back in high school, there were a number of things that I worked for, that I pursued, that I was absolutely certain about, and that I was even praying for, um, that now, you know, where I am at 35 years of age, I can say... I was thinking about this. I think it's safe to say that almost nothing about my life has worked out the way that I wanted it to when I was 17 years old. And all I can say now, having the infinite wisdom of a 35-year-old, is thank you, God, for not letting 17-year-old Ryan steer the ship because we would have been doomed a while ago if he was in charge. And it's, you know, maybe you can say that. Maybe you were a genius in high school, smarter than me. Wouldn't be hard to be smarter than I was in high school. But my point is, it's fun to poke fun at myself at 17 now, but I'm relatively certain that 50-year-old Ryan is going to look at 35-year-old Ryan through the same lens. And 70-year-old Ryan is going to look at 50-year-old Ryan through the same lens, and I think you understand where I'm going here. My point is that if you really believed that at any given moment in your life, your destiny was ultimately entirely and only up to the wisdom you had at that moment and the choices you made on that day, and you thought through the implications of that, if you had a shred of common sense, you would not get out of bed in the morning. You just wouldn't do it. So on, on one end of the spectrum is this belief that everything's fixed, your choices don't matter. That is a belief that will certainly, it's a little light on hope, I'll put it that way. On the other end of the spectrum, you have this belief that nothing's fixed and your choices are the only thing that matters which is a belief system that, like I said, if you really think through it, doesn't afford you a great deal of, of, of confidence. Um, and and uh, what you have here in the Bible when you survey the whole canon of Scripture is that the Bible challenges both ideas at both ends of the spectrum. Because if you were to ask the entire Bible, are we free or is there a plan that we can't escape, the answer to the Bible, like I said, is yes. And you see this in Ephesians. We, we talked about this last week. We masked over it so quickly, you know, and we almost didn't have time to get into it. But in the, um, in the fourth verse of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, you're told something that is just mind-bending if you sit and think about it for any length of time. You're told that if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
And just so you know, I'm not making this up, let me read it to you. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So did you, did, was there a moment in, if you're a Christian, was there a moment in your life that you chose to give your life to Jesus? Absolutely. But your choice was in response to a choice God made about you a long time before you drew your first breath or anybody else did. So there is a plan for your life. It's fixed. And when it says he chose you to be holy and blameless, that's talking about being made into the image of Jesus. I'll, I'll just tell you, God decided before you were born to make you into the image of Christ. That is an amazing thing to think about. But get to the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and Paul will tell you over and over in lots of different ways to strive with every effort of every fiber of your, I mean, all of your strength to become like Jesus and walk worthy of this calling that's been placed on your life. Literally, once again, just to prove it here, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. So you read chapter 1, verse 4, and there's a plan that you can't escape. You read chapter 4, verse 1, and now your choices matter. So the question is, which is it? Is there a plan that I can't escape, or do my choices actually matter? And the answer of the Bible is simply yes. And it's only in holding together those seemingly paradoxical and incompatible truths that you and I will have the poise to make wise decisions that we might live a wise life. So let me pause here. You might find that fascinating, intellectually stimulating, whatever it is, but in and of itself, if we left here, that's not comforting. It's not comforting to simply know there is a plan and everything that you do somehow fits into that plan until you actually know what this plan is about, and then it's a good plan. And that's exactly where Paul goes next, and this is going to be our third and final idea. Number three, Jesus is the point of the plan. Now, this is an idea that is, is uh, central to the message of Ephesians. It's something that Paul kind of r- routinely echoes back toward in things that he says later on, so I'm sure it's something that we're going to get back to throughout this series. But what he's telling us here is not just that there's a plan that everything's a, a part of, but what this plan is about and what it's about is found in the second half of verse 10. But I'll read 9 and 10 to give you context. It says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment. And here it is. What I'm about to read you, the second half of verse 10, is God's master plan, not just for mankind, it's for the universe, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So, so now you know where this story's going. According to what we just read, God's plan is to bring everything back together. Now, what that means, uh, first and foremost, by implication, is that at the present, things are coming apart. If, if God's plan is to bring everything back together, it must mean that right now they're not in a state of togetherness. They're in a state of coming apart, uh, and, and they have been ever since Genesis chapter 3. The Bible tells us exactly why we experience reality the way that we do in literally the third chapter of the Bible. And I actually think, uh, you know, as much as people outside the faith have kind of poked fun at the, you know, Genesis creation account, if you just look at it and read it for what it is, I think Genesis chapter 3 offers the most satisfying explanation of why we experience reality the way that we do and why we intuitively know that something's wrong with it. 
In Genesis chapter 3, what you're being told is that the moment that we put ourselves in the place of God, which every single human heart desires to do, when we decided to be our own gods, our own lords, to try to determine you know, right and wrong and, and, and the course of our lives for ourselves, in that moment, this kind of wholesale disintegration began to take place that the Bible refers to as sin, and it left nothing untouched. That in that moment, we're told God begins to, you know, sort of prophesy and forecast what reality is going to be like as a result of that decision. What we're told in the fallout of that is that our relationship with the world at large began to come apart. Our relationship with our work began to fall apart. Uh, Our relationship with other people began to fall apart. But even, I don't know how much we we talk about this, but in those, those, um, those verses, we're even told how our relationship with ourselves would disintegrate because of sin which is something that I think you're seeing today. We, we, we seem to be you know, such a, a um, mentally, and emo- mentally and emotionally more conscious than we have been maybe in, in decades past. And, and what's really common now is how often, maybe you've heard somebody say this, maybe you said this yourself, maybe you feel like this this morning, how often people will say, I, I feel like I need to find myself. I don't even know who I am anymore. A lot of times that'll happen after a life-changing event or, or you know, just a chapter in life closing or whatever it is. And it's, it's such a strange thing when you zoom out to hear somebody say that because they're talking about their own self like it's this person that they're alienated from. And the Bible says the, the reason you feel like that is because that's actually what happened to you. That, that sin left no relationship uh, untouched, undisintegrated. Everything is coming apart. And that explains... Not only why you see, you know, on an individual local level, why you see individuals have psychological and existential breakdowns, but then on, a, on kind of a global scale, why you see things like racism and sexism and nation at war against nation and oppression and injustice and all the violence that mankind's been capable of. It's because in every way and at every level, things are coming apart. The things that God desired to be together have been coming apart ever since Genesis chapter 3. The question is, well, what's going to be done about this? And we're reading the answer to that question literally right here in verse 10. Uh, when you read this in the original Greek, there's a word that Paul uses with regard to Jesus, which is um, really difficult to translate into English. That's why if, if, you, if you were to go home today, if you read uh, Ephesians 1.10 and a bunch of different English translations... Uh, almost all of them translate the word differently. And whenever you have a word like that, it means that the Greek word just means so much that, that no single English word can capture it. But probably the best translation that we have, and some, some translations render it this way, is that um, God is going to sum everything up. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. He's going to sum everything up in Jesus Christ. Now, you, you hear that, and maybe you're thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? And I'll... I'll I'll explain. Here's how I understand it. Maybe you'll find this helpful. With every, um, every great story I've ever read or, or, or great movie that I've ever watched, what they all have in common is that they all have brought me, at some point in the story, when I was really captured by it, they brought me to this point where I'm on the edge of my seat and, uh, and I just, I'm at this point where uh, I can't see how on earth all of the plot lines are going to be resolved in a way that brings real resolution to the story. Uh, Every story that's ever captured me has brought me to that moment, but the mark of a truly great story, because not all of them do this. If you want a great example, I don't know if you remember the TV show Lost. Lost was like the greatest TV show in the world for three seasons, and then it became clear 
J.J. Abrams had no idea how he was going to land this plane, so he just did it. It made no sense, and everyone was really sad about it, and I'm still recovering from that emotionally. Point is, uh, the mark of a, great, a truly great story is that when it brings you to that point, as you keep reading or you keep watching, you eventually kind of wake up and you realize that all the tension has been resolved, all the longings have been fulfilled, everything's been satisfied, every loose end has been tied up. Uh, every great story actually requires that. And what Paul is saying here is, is not just that that what, <laughs> I can't say this without a smile on my face. What Paul is saying here is not just that Jesus, that that's what he does, it's that that's who he is. That Jesus Christ himself is the resolution to the story. Not just to, to, to history in general, but to your and my life personally. That we were designed to know him. That we were made, we, were, we require a relationship with him in order to find the resolution that our hearts intuitively knows we just can't seem to find in this life. And so what, what Paul's saying here is that God's design for history is to bring everything that's been falling apart since Genesis 3 back together, but he's going to bring it back together under the kingship, under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Because it's only when we are finally, fully, totally, and eternally under the kingship of Jesus Christ again that we will find the resolution that we have always longed for but never quite been able to find in this life. Now, amen. Got one. Got one. I'll take it. Uh, when, um, as I was thinking about this idea, I, I've, been, I've been waiting to use this analogy for a long time now. It fits here. Um, summer of 2020, COVID had just hit. And uh, that was the first time in my life that I started reading the genre of literature known as um, high fantasy. Uh, prior to that time in my life, pretty much all of the, the, the books that I read, and I always like to have some book that I'm reading, but pretty much every book that I read, you could, you could lump under the category of personal development. But when COVID hit, I just felt like things were so heavy and it was so negative. I just needed to put something beautiful in front of me. So at the advice of some friends, I, I started reading high fantasy first time in my life. So that summer, I got through all the Narnia Chronicles. Uh, I got through The Hobbit, and then I read The Lord of the Rings. And I've talked to people about those books since then. And one of the things that I always say is um, the, the reason that I would recommend high fantasy to anybody else, I, I can't promise you that it'll do this in your life, but, but what it did for me is when I was done reading those books, I felt like they made me more human. Really weird thing to say. But I phrase it that way because as I was kind of captivated by those stories, my biggest takeaway from it was it, it's almost like it woke up areas of my heart you know, and kind of put me in touch with desires I didn't even know I had that only, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people can't touch those parts of me. You know, how to win friends and influence people, that it's not going to do that to you like a, a, a truly beautiful story can, for instance. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which you're almost definitely familiar with, the third book in that trilogy is called The Return of the King. And you have um, one of the main characters all throughout the trilogy is this character, Aragorn, who you just, he's a, he's a character that you just can't help but admire. Because on the one hand, he is, he's, he's so strong and he's so brave that he's willing to stand up to these just terrifying, impossibly powerful forces of evil. But on the other hand, he's so kind and he's so gentle that his hands bring healing to his people. He's a healer. And when he takes his rightful place as king and he resumes his place on the throne, it's as though the whole world begins to heal. And when I read that, it, it wasn't like 
oh man, this is great writing. It wasn't like, it, it, it was more than that. It was, it, my biggest takeaway is I, I remember thinking, man, I had no idea how much my heart longed for that. I had no idea how much I longed to live under the reign of a king that I could trust, a king that I could admire, a king who would fight for me, a king who would heal me, and a king who would somehow set right everything that's been set wrong. And it's funny when you think about it, how often that story seems to come back to us and how it just has this kind of timeless universal appeal that pulls at at, at people's heartstrings. I mean, that's basically the plot of The Lion King. You know, you have in this story, Mufasa, the rightful king, dies. Spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen The Lion King yet, that's kind of on you. Scar takes his place, and he's the wrong king. And so everybody suffers. What's the climax of the whole story? The, the rightful king, symbol returns, and when he does, it's literally the ending scene. It's everything's made right in the world. The people begin to flourish. Healing comes to even. It's, it's even lighter. It's more beautiful. And that's the end of the story. Because when they wrote that, they knew that is the end of the story. That is, that you don't need to go beyond that. And it's the same thing. There's ancient stories. This theme has, has just shown up again and again and again. King Arthur, you know, this legendary king. One day he's going to return with his knights at the round table. And when he does, justice is going to rule through the land and the people are going to flourish. And it's so wild when you really think about the fact that that story has, has so often been so popular with, with people because history doesn't teach us that. I mean, I could stand up here today, we could talk for hours about example after example that history offers us of kings and leaders and rulers and emperors who, when they were given absolute power, were corrupted absolutely by it. And, and they become this tyrant and people suffer and then they have to eventually overthrow it and, you know, blood alone turns the wheels of history kind of thing. But it... it it's just so wild that we can't get away from this nagging belief or this nagging hope that, well, maybe we just haven't found the right king yet. Maybe he's still out there. And if he would return and he would take his rightful place, then everything would be made right. And the Bible actually says the reason that we think that, the reason that we love that story is because that story's true. And there's a part of every human heart that knows it. We know that we're not meant to sit on the thrones of our own hearts. We know that we're meant to live under the leadership and the headship and the kingship of the true king who will somehow find a way to banish the forces of evil and heal us and set right everything that's been made wrong. And what Paul is saying here is that that longing that's in your heart that you didn't decide to have will find its fulfillment one day by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Because his reign and his power has broken into human history in an already not yet dynamic but When it's complete and he resumes his reign in full, then will every plot line of history be resolved. It's pretty amazing. Now, I I kind of touched on this earlier, but what what I'd ask you to consider, it's hard to think like this, but remember, the Ephesians never heard anything like this before. It's not like this was an intuitive idea that just came out of the Roman. Like nobody was saying Zeus is going to return and heal us. Their, their idea of the pantheon, the gods, they were, you know, they were petty. They were malevolent. They would use people as a means to their end, but they, never, they didn't love us. They didn't care for us. They certainly weren't interested in being a part of our lives or helping us or healing us or anything like that. So I, as I was thinking about that, I'm, I was just wondering, man, what would it be like? to be a part of that Ephesian congregation the day that they unrolled that letter from Paul and they read those words and they heard for the first time in their lives, oh my goodness, he's going to fix everything. He's not just going to save me and take me away to some paradise in the sky. 
He's actually going to fix everything. He's going to remake this place into what we've always known it should be. You know, what, what, what would it have been like to see the look on their faces? What, what were those conversations after that church service? What did they sound like? And how did that immediately begin to change the way that they live? Because The reason I ask that is because what this idea does, what it, this is what it did for the first Christians, and what it still does for people today, when you take this hope in, you internalize it, and you make it the foundation of your life, is it creates a community that the, that the watching world has a great deal of difficulty explaining away. And, and, and to explain what I mean there, I want to read to you a letter that I came across two years ago. It's called The Letter to Diognetus. Diognetus is a, um, well, well, first off, the letter itself was written in the second or third century to a person who was not a Christian called Diognetus. But he was, um, you know, he was an intellectual and he was a, you know, you could call him a skeptic or a seeker or what have you. Um, and he wanted to know, why does everybody keep talking about these Christians? And why don't they go away despite how badly they're treated and how much it costs them to come out and say that they're Christians? What makes these people so different? And the letter was written to him uh, to explain what, what these Christians are like. But the reason I love it so much, you can read the whole thing online. I'm just going to read a small part of it. But the reason I love the letter so much is because it gives you a, a really clear look into what the first followers of Jesus were like just a couple of generations after, you know, Paul and the first disciples died. And here's what he says. This is what the, the first followers of Jesus, which according to the Bible, this is, that's our family. Those are our brothers and sisters. Here's what they were known for. They're unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They're in lack of all things, yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they're glorified. They are evil spoken of, yet they're justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. What we're, what we're reading right there, that's a community that Rome could not figure out. Because Christians didn't run away from suffering like the Epicureans did. But they also didn't just endure it the way the Stoics did. They were a community of people that, that were somehow made better by the hardships they experienced. And it's not that they went out of their way to, you know, to get beat up, but when hardship and pain and persecution and death became a part of the path for their lives, it seemed to activate this deeper joy and peace in them that you, you can read it here. It didn't just improve the quality of their lives. It made everyone around them, even their unbelieving neighbors, better. Everywhere they, they went, everybody was better for it. Now, when Rome saw that, they knew whatever this was, this is something we've never dealt with before. And it raises the question, how do you explain that? And based on what we looked at today, it's, it's not a hard question to answer. They simply understood what Paul was trying to get the Ephesians to understand in these verses. That first off, there is a plan for history. Secondly, that everything that happens in history, including everything that happened to them, was a part of this plan. None of it was wasted. None of it was meaningless. But thirdly and most importantly, they understood that Jesus was the point of that plan. And they knew and they worked into their hearts that what that meant is that no matter what was taken from them, they knew that in Jesus, you never really miss out on anything. That means that in Jesus, even if your life never turns out the way that you so desperately want it to, even if you never accomplish your goals for your life, even if you never see your dreams fulfilled, 
even if you have to say goodbye to people that you love way sooner than you were planning on saying goodbye, no matter how much your life falls apart down here, that one day they knew in Jesus God was somehow going to bring it all back together, that every wound would one day be healed, that every tear would be wiped, and that somehow all of creation would be better for having once been broken. When you know that and you make that the operative principle of your life, it gives you the ability to maintain your joy, to maintain your peace, to maintain your sanity in the midst of a world that will continually try to take it from you. So all of that to say, and we're almost done, one last question here, what are we supposed to do with this? I said on the front end that Paul's goal here was to give us this 30,000-foot God's-eye view of, of his plan for history. Now that we have that God's-eye view, what's it all for? And, and to explain the answer to that question, let me tell you a story of something that happened to me this week. Thursday was kind of a roller coaster of a day for me. Um, you may have heard um, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that I recently became a van dad. Bought a 2015 Toyota Sienna almost exactly a month ago, and on Thursday it broke down. And I mean it broke all the way down. So Thursday, Katie had to work 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the hospital. Uh, so she was gone before the kids and I were even awake. And um, thankfully, Katie's uh, parents watch uh, our kids when Katie has to work so that I can come into the office. And so Thursday morning, I got the kids up, loaded them up in the van, uh, drove to Katie's parents' house, dropped them off. I was on the way back home. I was on 170 just prior to Dorsey Road. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, van started pulling pretty violently to the right. And I heard a, a tire screeching. It was really obvious that something was really seriously wrong. And so I, I put it in park, put on the hazards, hopped out. And sure enough, this is exactly what I saw. Three of my wheels were facing the way you would expect a wheel to face, which is forward. And then my driver's side front wheel was broke all the way to the right. I'm not a mechanic, but I thought, that's probably a part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> is a, unfortunately, it was a really, really bad place to break down because if you know that section of 170, you know there is no emergency lane at all. There's no shoulder. There's no nothing. It's just your lane and then the guardrail and then the woods. And I couldn't move the vehicle anymore in that condition, so I just had to get out. I hopped on the other side of the guardrail. I called up Brown's Toyota. They made it right, by the way. Shout out to Brown's. Thank you for taking care of me. If there's any Brown's people in the house, you know, God's blessing on you. Um, but I got on the horn with the tow company, and I, and I, you know, I, I arranged all that, but they said it's going to be 40 minutes. And so I didn't know what to do. I just waited on the other side of the guardrail, and it was a really nerve-wracking thing because I knew this before, but now I know it even more. Nobody knows how to drive around here. And I saw... Several people almost smashed into my beloved van. One guy, I mean, with, it had to be inches, came flying up behind it, slammed on the brakes, comes through a screeching halt, just inches, you know, prior to the bumper. And then, you know, another driver did the same thing behind him. And so when he figured out what was going on, he pulled around the van. He saw me sitting on the guardrail. I assume he thought it was my birthday and that I was turning one based on a really friendly hand gesture he offered me. And so I knew I had to do something. I knew I had to do something. So I walked about 100 yards up from the van, and, uh, and I knew I had to start signaling people because I didn't want to see. I mean, the only thing worse than your van breaking is seeing somebody else get hurt, and I just I didn't want to do that. So for about 20, 30 minutes, I was about 100 yards up the road, and I'm, and I'm almost standing in the lane that they were driving, and, and this is my hand signal. And I would literally say, you got to get over, you got to get over, you got to get over, you got to get over. did this for about 20 minutes, and to be perfectly candid, I hated every second of it. 
Uh, most of the people had no idea what I was trying to tell them to do. A bunch of them got really angry at me, and a few of them almost hit and killed me right there on the side of the road. But in my mind, I had to be out there for one specific reason. Here it is. When you know what's coming, it becomes your responsibility to tell everybody else. It just got real, didn't it? All right? When you understand that concept... You, you're beginning to understand the point of why this is in the Bible at all. I said on the front end of this series that this whole, this eight-week shot in Ephesians is all about getting at this question. What does it really mean? I don't think this question has ever been more relevant, at least in my ministry, than it is right, right now. What does it really mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? And what you're seeing in verse, verses 9 through 12 that we looked at this morning is one of the most inspiring and sobering answers to that question I can think of. Because what Paul has just done for followers of Jesus is peeled back the curtain of history and he's telling you how the story ends. But he's not telling us that simply for our personal individual gratification. He's telling us that so we might show the rest of the world. Here's, here's what I mean when I say that. To be a Christian means, according to Peter, you are a partaker of the divine nature. It means the being, the DNA, so to speak, of God has entered into your life. That's why you're a new creation. Same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you bodily. That, that power that will one day completely heal, transform, and restore the universe is at work in your life, such that the word of God can say, you are not what you used to be, and you are now on a trajectory of healing and transformation and restoration. When you understand that, what that means is that what it means to be a part of the church is that when the watching world looks in at our lives, when they see our marriages, when they see our families, when they see how we conduct our business, when they see our generosity, when they see how we treat each other, how we disagree with one another, how we look out for one another, when they see how we endure hardship, when they see how we interact with people outside the family of faith, when they see how we navigate race relations, intergenerational relations, different class relations, they should see a glimpse of the healing power that is possible under the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a part of the church. And when you understand that, you realize how much you miss when you try to reduce church to just a meeting we do once a week that's here to meet my needs and give me a little shot of inspiration or encouragement or a psychological boost so I can go out and accomplish my plans and my goals and my dreams for my life. And I want to be really clear here, Christianity will give you all that. I mean, in, in my dealings with Jesus, there's been so many times in my life when I've spent time in God's word or I've listened to a message or I've been a part of a church service where I did get a shot of encouragement or a psychological boost. Christianity will give you that, but it's about something so much more than that. It's about being a part of a community that puts on display the power that will one day heal the entire universe under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me call the worship team up. We're gonna close with this. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the most famous elevator pitch in history. But in 1983, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, uh, knew that he needed to find somebody to manage the day-to-day -day operations of Apple so that he could fo focus exclusively on product development. And he had his eye on somebody. Steve Jobs is a great scout for talent. He had his eye on, a, on the then president of Pepsi, a guy by the name of John Scully. And uh, multiple times, Scully had said, you know, he was fascinated by what was going on at Apple and even fascinated at how much success Jobs 
had accomplished that, I think he was only 27 at the time, but he, at the end of the day, he said, I'm not really interested, I'm happy where I am. And so in a last-ditch effort, Steve Jobs looked him in the eye. This is going on to be what a lot of people consider uh, the most famous elevator pitch in history. He, he said, this is a direct quote, do you want to spend your life selling sugared water or do you want the chance to change the world? Scully went on to say that those words haunted him and he could not go back to Pepsi any longer. <laughs> he resigned, he came to work at Apple, and the rest is history. But I, I, I share that story to end simply to say this, that what Jesus is saying to all of us is a similar thing, but on a far grander scale. Every single one of us, that it's the default of the human heart is to go through this life looking out for ourselves and building our kingdom and focusing exclusively on, on my wants and my needs and my goals and my dreams and my career and my retirement and my money and my wealth and my image and everything. What Jesus would say to you and I through this passage is, do you want to live a miserably small, self-centered life with a handful of breaths that I've given you? Or do you want to be a part of something that Jesus died to create? that the gates of hell will not prevail against, that literally will change the world because that and nothing less is what it means to be a part of the church. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, you didn't have to tell us the end of the story. You could have told us to simply trust you, but what you've given us here is a glimpse to where all of this is headed. And that is such a stabilizing resource in the ups and downs of life to know how this story ends, God, but you didn't simply give that to us so that we could be personally peaceful. You've given that to us so that we might see this with the eye of faith. We might drive this into the center of our lives and become a community of people that puts your healing, transforming, restoring power on display, God. So to everybody here who's given their life to Jesus, I pray that this would be more real to them than it ever has been that you would wake us up and shake us out of these naturally self-centered lives that we tend to default to, God. But for anybody here who has not made that decision, please help them to see that the plot lines of their life will only find resolution in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. God's people said, amen.